Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. But of that, you were cognizant, were you not? Hey, it's a great day to be alive. I hope you're having a wonderful time wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And I appreciate you taking a few minutes to share the afternoon or evening or morning with me. I've got a great conversation for you today with my new friend, Joe Saul Sihai. He's the host of an excellent personal finance podcast called Stacking Benjamins. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you know that I'm a bit skeptical. (laughs) That's an understatement. I'm a bit skeptical of people who have way more of an idea about what you should do with your life than they are of their own qualifications to give you that advice. Joe and Stacking Benjamins does not fit into that category at all. Joe and his co-host OG are very qualified guys who deliver a highly substantive and very fun product about which they do not take themselves too seriously. Did that make sense? Anyway, they're great dudes. Their show's hilarious, and I look forward to you learning a little bit more about it. Hey, I want to tell you that I am coming to you live from Perrysburg, Ohio today. Where's Perrysburg, Ohio? Well, it's suburban Toledo, silly. Don't you know that? I've had a great time this weekend opening for the comedian Tony Roberts. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've never heard of Tony Roberts, I got to tell you, this dude is unbelievable. I'd never seen him live before, and it is nonstop energy from the moment he comes on stage until the moment he leaves. The crowd cannot catch its breath for 45 to 60 minutes, depending upon how much coffee he has had. Anyway, great, great comic. And I greatly appreciate the opportunity to work the funny bone. Thank you to Nadia and her awesome staff for the opportunity. You know, we talk here on this podcast about what we do, the choices we make in our lives and our careers and our pursuit of happiness. And certainly when you trade a great job for the opportunity to make a living in the creative world, what you think about is the opportunity to do your art. And for comedians, that means, oh, anywhere from five minutes to an hour of stage time during which you get to snort the narcotic feeling that happens when you make a room full of 300 people laugh uncontrollably and simultaneously. It is a head rush like none other, really, that I have ever experienced. And to gear your whole life around that drug is an interesting thing because that's about 10% of your day. Not even. I mean, of your waking hours, maybe. 10% of your waking hours. And the rest of it is geared around, the logistics of it are geared around getting to that drug. You know, I hear heroin addicts talk about like their life is kind of simple because all they do when they wake up is focus on scoring. Well, comedy's a little bit like that. You plan your whole day around the opportunity to do your thing. So I've been at the Hilton Garden Inn for going on three days now. I'm sitting here recording this at the desk. My laptop is open. My wet gym clothes are on the floor. And it's about, what is it, 1.13 p.m., I'll go on stage in six hours, and I've been awake since about 10 a.m. I got back to the room last night at midnight, had a glass of wine, and went to sleep. Slept late, thank God. But when you're on the road, you spend like nine waking hours by yourself in physical spaces that are not your own. So you just kill all this time. And a little bit of it is good. It's actually good to have the opportunity to be alone and focus and knock out a ton of work you've been meaning to do. But after a certain point, you're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with myself? Just kind of a peek into what it's like to chase your dream. So before you chase your dream, just keep in mind that it's not the tip of the iceberg that you're committing to. Your life as a creative person isn't just the art opening that you're going to have if you're a successful visual artist. It's not just the time on stage as a comedian or your opportunity to feed the president if you want to be a five-star chef. It is the dozens and dozens and thousands of hours that you're by yourself working on your craft or living a life to enable the opportunity to pursue that craft. Am I rambling? I think I'm rambling a little bit. Joe Saul Sihai is the host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, which uses humor to inspire people to think more seriously about money and financial well-being. Kiplinger named Stacking Benjamins best finance podcast of the year, and the Academy of Podcasters called it best business podcast. You'll also find Stacking Benjamins on the best of list in Forbes, US News and World Report, and thestreet.com. Joe and his co-host OG know their stuff, are 100% real, and make learning about money fun. Like, for real. Like, it's actually funny and very well produced. Lighthearted and substantive all at the same time. Joe also co-hosts the Money with Friends podcast, 
with fellow friend of the Crazy Money Podcast, Bobby Rebel. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to enjoy lunch with Joe and his lovely wife, Cheryl, in Detroit Friday before I drove down to Toledo. Didn't realize that Toledo was so close to Detroit, but uh, those are some of the fun things you learn when you're chasing your dream out here on the road. Ladies and gentlemen, Oh, one other thing. At the end of this interview, I asked Joe where people can find him on the interwebs. And I want to apologize for that because I hate that phrase. It's not clever. It's not funny. Here is my conversation with Joe Saul Cihai. You came back to Detroit after a few years away. Tell me what's going on there these days. It is a different city. My brother-in-law one time at our holiday celebration was was ripping on Detroit. And I'm like, whoa, 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 pal. Detroit's a badass city. He's like, well, you rip Detroit all the time. I'm like, yeah, but I live here. Right. But I'll tell you, anybody today, though, Paul, who rips Detroit, you got to come here. Because when I left a decade ago, downtown was mostly closed. And you come into downtown today and Woodward Avenue, the main thoroughfare, wide open, stores open, people walking kick-ass restaurants, these little hidden places that nobody knows about in the back room, old buildings being renovated with these kick-ass companies. It is a really, really neat, vibrant place. And and they're making all the right moves, you know, moving the auto show from January to June. (laughs) My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. I'm already laughing. We haven't even started. We're already laughing. Joe Saul Cihai, welcome to Crazy Money. I feel like I've made the big time. Paul Ollinger sitting across the table from me. Yeah, the virtual table. But yeah, someday we'll do this in person. Maybe in Toledo next week. Be very fun. Joe, you are the host, as you know, you know what you're the host of, but her audience doesn't know. You're the host of a great and very fun personal finance podcast called Stacking Benjamins. And I want to know, did you find this job listed on the job board at Stacking Benjamins Global Headquarters? Is that how you got your gig? I did. I went down to my mom's basement. I was searching around and she said, uh, dude, you need a job. It was, it was more a note handed to me from mom. If you promise me that you're making some money, you can still hang out in the basement. And, and that's how it all began. <laughs> how did you go from working stiff to self-employed finance? By the way, is it finance or finance? I'm from Georgia. I hear finance a lot. I, you know, people that say tomato, I say tomato, you say tomato. Who the hell says tomato? Nobody, nobody says, tomato. says tomato. Yeah, right. Yes. And by the way, nobody says finance. Get over that, loser. <laughs> How and why did you go from working stiff to self-employed? Yes. Finance guru. A guru. I don't know about guru. Financial media. I was a financial planner and I'd been a financial planner for 16 years when, it was about 15 years, when a mentor of mine wrote that he was leaving the big uh, firm that I was with. I was with American Express and Ameriprise when I was doing financial planning. And I was one of 12 people in the nation that spoke on behalf of the company in a financial planner role. So I was one of the like experts that could talk first on major media and then go through compliance later. And if you know anything about finance, you know, compliance is this big bear and nobody can say anything who's responsible, which is why Twitter, when it comes to finance, has a bunch of people that don't know what they're talking about, talking. <laughs> very freely. And a lot of people who know a lot about money are completely quiet because they have lawyers between them and their keyboard. So, uh, but anyway. So at this point, do we need to read a disclaimer saying that financial advice is not being given or uh, shared on this podcast? You don't have one of those after every third sentence we say? <laughs> I don't No. <laughs> it's a big, big problem, Paul. Big problem. All right. Compliance. So, yes. So I get this letter from a mentor of mine. It's his two weeks notice. Now I work in a business or worked in a business where you don't give two weeks notice. It's like Jerry Maguire. If you've seen that movie, you leave at midnight with the client files. And as soon as you think your client's awake, you're calling them and you're asking them to come with you. Right. And this guy's giving two weeks. And he has this wonderful letter saying, you know what? I really like financial planning. I don't love financial planning. I've got all these other things I want to do. But he didn't phrase it that way. He said, I have other mountains I want to climb. And so I'm giving my two weeks notice. I'm leaving. I've been lucky. I've saved a bunch of money while I was here. I've done some of the right things when I was young. So now I can do what I really want to do. And it's funny when he said he had other mountains to climb where I thought he was being 
kind of silly being a wordsmith, he, he went and climbed Mount Everest twice. And he, <laughs> he and he climbed most of the tall peaks around the world. He's climbed almost all of them. He now runs an adventure travel company in Colorado. He's a phenomenal human being doing exactly what he loves. And so I looked at my practice and said, you know what? I really like what I do. I don't love what I do. And so I set off to become a high school teacher and a track coach at 40 years old. I sold my business and said, you know what? I've also made enough money. It's time for me to, to do the thing that I love. Go get into that teaching racket where the big bucks are. That is where all the money is. And it's funny you say that because all my clients that were teachers, when I told them, hey, I'm leaving and I was transitioning everybody to another advisor, making sure everybody had good help in their corner, I would tell them my plan and they'd say, Joe, you'd make a very good teacher, but you're going to hate teaching. You're going to absolutely hate it. Why did they say that? Because you're not fighting the student, you're fighting the whole machine of teaching. You're no longer teaching students, you're teaching to test. Every teacher in your audience, Paul, is nodding their head aggressively right now. (laughs) You've got this checkbox of things, there's no creativity. We continually create a lot of rules around what teachers can do and can't do and put them in a box instead of letting these wonderful people do the good stuff, you know? And so I made it about a year and a half before... I realized that on the side, I was writing a bunch of stuff just for fun for my friends who were still financial advisors, still on TV and radio like I had been. I was writing scripts for their TV segments. I was writing their client newsletters. One of, one of my friends said, I love the stories of all the things I do in my newsletter. So they pay me to write their newsletter and I'd say, you know, I was out with the family camping and I was looking at the way the fire is inside the fire pit and it made me think about risk. Mm. So my buddies would say, I'd love going camping. I haven't been camping in six years. What do I do? What the heck do I do? So, but anyway, I realized that I was making more money than I would as a teacher and I'm doing it in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and my kids were in high school at the time and I really wanted to watch them. I knew that we had a limited clock on that relationship before they moved out. So I decided to then get into financial blogging and from financial blogging, the podcast was born about eight and a half years ago. Why did you think you wanted to be a teacher? My favorite part of financial planning has always been helping people see something that they hadn't seen before. Mm. When you see that aha moment, I like when I get that aha moment, right? When all of a sudden my opinion has changed, my feeling has changed about something. I love it when I see it in politics, which never happens anymore, right? (laughs) On the rare day when we see that, I love it. So I love it when the light comes on. My wife and I met as junior high track coaches. We were both... uh, doing seventh and eighth grade track. I was the boys coach. She was the girls coach. And that experience was fantastic. Working with people who trusted you so much and being able to help guide them toward something that they didn't think they could do. Our team went from last place in our division to undefeated the next year second place just barely my last year. I only coached three years, but but my third year, we just barely got beat and we didn't have that much talent, but we had a lot of heart and it was really exciting to motivate people to do something they wouldn't do on their own. And when it comes to money, by the way, you know what you and I do now, I still love that feeling. I love the feeling of the financial nerd who's there with us, who loves it, but I much, much, much more love the person who stumbles upon our podcast and goes, I didn't think this could be fun. And I love that you guys make it fun. The vibe you have is unique, especially in the personal finance category where some people are pseudo-religious figures and you don't take yourselves too seriously and yet you're also not like morning radio drive time zoo crew, aren't we zany horse crap? Like there is both substance and lightheartedness on Stacking Benjamins. How did you decide on the format and the vibe? I like late night TV shows, number one. I really like not the zany morning show, but I do like, you know, Jimmy Fallon. I like them all. I also have ADD in a really bad way. And I have listened to podcasts since they began since 2005. 
and listening to podcasts. I like podcasts that have segments. I like podcasts that move quickly. Don't get me wrong. I listen to some podcasts that are long interviews. I'll listen sometimes to Tim Ferriss talk to somebody for two hours or Joe Rogan for almost three hours sometimes. Mm -hmm. But generally, that's not my personality and I get into trouble there. So I fit it around me and I fit it around my audience. I also fit it around this idea that I've always had that especially when you're trying to teach somebody something that they really don't want to learn about, (laughs) shoving it down their throat isn't a good way to make them learn. So I love You weren't raised Catholic. Clearly you weren't raised Catholic. (laughs) No guilt. There you go. I love board games. And when I teach a board game, I do not like these educational games. Like, you know, you go into a school and they have all these educational games, people shopping. And if you make educational games, I'm sorry, I really don't like them. But I do like games, like as an example, one game called Power Grid. This is going to sound like the most boring theme ever, Paul. It's known as a very good game, but it's about creating network of utilities across the United States. You're upgrading your power plants. You're getting wind power and going from oil and gas power and coal up to nuclear power. And as the game goes on, you're trying to make things more efficient. The game teaches you nothing about power yet. Now, when I'm flipping through my flipboard in the morning, looking at, at different articles, and I find one about energy I'm now intensely interested about energy (laughs) because I got this little thing. I'm like, oh, nuclear power. I bet that's more efficient. It's kind of dangerous, right? There's all these issues around it. I learned nothing from playing the game, but I am interested enough that now I will learn a lot about it in the future. And that was the point where we wanted to be. And give me an example of how you'll trick me into learning something on Stacking Benjamins. Well, if you talk to any of our longtime listeners, they'll tell you our mantra is, if you learn something, keep it to yourself because you're going to ruin our reputation. That's number one. Right. Number two is we laugh a lot like you do here and we try to keep it light. We have my mom's neighbor, Doug. So the show starts off, it's live from my mom's half finished basement Mm -hmm. on purpose Yes, because most financial show, well, most podcasters are trying to pretend they're not in mom's basement. Let's be real. (laughs) I'm in my basement. Actually, I'm I'm over my garage, but that's Mark Maron's space. So (laughs) I'm not going to say the garage, you know, it's been done. Yes. You're the garage attic. Yes. I'm in my in-laws guest suite is where I am. You're one floor above the garage. So take that, Marin. Nice. Yeah. So it's live from my mom's half-finished basement. When guests come down to my mom's basement, they sit at a rickety card table with us and, <laughs> and we talk about money. My mom's neighbor, Doug, is our announcer guy. Our artwork has my co-host, who is a working certified financial planner with a bag over his head because he wants to talk very bluntly about money and uh, wants people to know that we're going to talk kind of bluntly about the stuff that, um, you know, we're not going to be industry stiffs just telling you that, hey, pay a bunch of high fees and it's going to be fantastic. Feed the machine, baby. We're not going to do that. So everything from the beginning is designed to tell you we're having fun from the bag over the head when you look at our artwork to the very first line of the show you'll hear is live from Joe's mom's basement. It's the Stacky Benjamin show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Like why the hell does Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, why is he involved? We do trivia in the middle of the show. There are some segments that I'm not allowed to talk about contractually that uh, (laughs) people just have to learn about. Hey folks, do you need last minute Christmas or Hanukkah presents? You know you do. So you should check out my friend Denise's site, electricdcreations.com, electricdcreations.com. Spreading peace, love, and rock and roll with small batch crafty crafts handmade in Hoboken, New Jersey, Electric D brings you wine totes, kitchen towels, and much more that say as much about you as they do about the person you're giving them to. You're awesome. Your hand towels and wine totes should be too. Don't show up to a holiday party with your wine and a lame paper bag or a sad, unoriginal gift bag that you bought at World Market or the back shelves at TJ Maxx in July when they were 85% off. No. Deliver your vino in a limited edition music piece or outer space theme wine tote that says, I know where to find the raddest everyday items that are low key and authentically cool. You can see more about Electric D at electricdcreations.com. There's a link in the show notes. Go there, 
buy some stuff. Why is the personal finance space so crowded? It seems like everywhere you turn, there's some expert you've never heard of publishing a book or starting a podcast on personal finance. And you got to ask, who the hell is this person and what's their real motivation? Now that you're in the podcasting game, Paul, did you just say that you get pitched a lot now? I get pitched pretty often. And so here's here's a question I get. Like people, they see money in the title of my show. So they automatically assume that this is a personal finance podcast, which it is in one sense, like in the, in the sense that you guys talk about the how and the strategy and the tactics. I talk about the why, like what are we trying to do and why are we trying to do it? I don't know what a Roth IRA is, but like I couldn't explain it if you, if you gave me the manual, right? I get pitched from people. It seems that people that sell real estate in their pajamas are very interested in coming on my show. And that's not what this is about. I'll push back a little bit. We also sometimes talk about the why, but it's a, but it's a circus. It's a variety show. So we'll talk about the why, the how, the what, the nothing to do with money, like all over the place. But, but I get your point. And I think that here's who, you know, money topics, I think appeal to two distinctly different types of people. There are people who want to be okay Mm. and they want to make sure that their life is going to be all right. So they want to have a basic understanding of how do I put myself in a spot where I don't have to worry about this. And I put myself in that camp. I don't want to think about money. I don't obsess about money. I just want to be able to do whatever the hell I want to do whenever I want to do it. If I can do that, that's fantastic. And I realize that that's going to take a basic understanding of a few different levers that I have to pull and kind of reverse psychology of what's going on in my head because behavior is a big part of it. But then there's the other side, which I think there's always, uh, there are people in that crowd who think, how do I get something for nothing? (laughs) Yeah. How do I get the secret? And the bad news is these people, and, and there's always a new crop of them, they always come looking for the secret and they're always sadly disappointed that there isn't one. The secret is, is that it's going to take hard work. You're going to have to manage yourself as much as you have to manage this terms and terminology. You have to begin with the end in mind. Like all of this stuff right. that sounds suspiciously Paul-like work. Yes. No. <laughs> suspiciously like work and a little bit of self-denial, which I'm not into. If I spend $22.95 on a book that lays out a framework, I want to be able to buy whatever the hell I want to buy. Absolutely. Let's talk about the stacking Benjamin's creed. Personal finance is personal. We're all trying to stack. What does that mean? It means that, so what's important to me is not important to you. And I don't like it in, uh, you know, I'll be in a Facebook community, some money and those things will suck the life out of your soul. Sometimes <laughs> I, I like ours because it's a bunch of dad jokes and you kind of, right. you track people who are like you, but I go into some of these hardcore groups and the stank people give each other because you don't know what I know already. I'm like back off, dude. That, this person might have completely different goals than you have. They might be motivated by something completely different than you're motivated by. And everybody wants to be the big smart guy in the room. The thing that they forget is that I used to work with about 150 families to help them meet their goals. So over a 16-year period, between people that hired me and people that didn't, I've probably been exposed to over a thousand families' money. And you know what? Most people who want to prove they're smart on the internet have zero dollars saved. <laughs> they're professors that know every single computation but haven't done anything. The people who actually do stuff that don't sit on the internet and brag about it, you know? So I guess, you know, what that means is let's be a little less judgy. And I just said that the most judgy way possible. I'm highly skeptical of a lot of these personal finance gurus. I mean, like they're sitting there with all the answers. Anybody who has all the answers, I think is full of shit. And even Tim Ferriss, who is, you know, wildly successful. I'm like, dude, there's no such thing as a four hour work week. You're selling snake oil. It doesn't exist. And it's a great product, but like, don't put your faith in somebody that has all the answers. I don't have answers. I have questions. Come here to Crazy Money and help me explore questions. I just don't want to be yelled at about my money. And I don't know when that became a thing when you called into, and I have great respect for what they've done, but you know, uh, Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey, I don't understand why so many people are attracted to getting yelled at about their money and about their, their mistakes psychology there, Paul. We need a father figure in our life or a mother, strong mother figure. I don't know. I have photographic evidence that Susie Orman was actually in Duran Duran. 
I do. When she calls me back, when her team calls me back, I'm going to release it on the internet. Until then, I'm hanging on to it. All right. We all have... And by the way, are you talking about the fire movement when you talk about the people who are the smartest people in all those Facebook groups? Because it seems like there's a lot of preachy stuff going on in there. Well, what's funny is, is that you and I know a lot of people that are kind of the gurus in the fire movement. Mm -hmm. And those people will tell you the problem isn't what the real movement's about. It's about some people's interpretation, I think. Uh, I seriously think there's an interpretation problem. I think that some people turn the fire movement, which is, you know, uh, financial independence, retire early movement, people trying to retire at 30, 35 years old, or even, you know, retire in a tent in the woods and make <laughs> my own furniture at 23 <laughs> How I retired on $14. That's a new thing on the how, internet. How I retired before I went to college. Right. <laughs> I just checked out early. Yeah, man. I think there's a lot of mistakes there and people get very, I'm more fiery than you. Uh, I'm the top of this fire spear. I'm the, uh, I'm the person that can retire on less. My red beans and rice have fewer beans and more rice than yours has. Right. Those aren't the people that I usually hang out with. You know, the people that I hang out with that are big quote fire movement people, it's a lot less me, 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 me. It's a lot more about teaching people to think about what your goals in your life is, which is why I personally think FIRE, the acronym FIRE took off. And it's, I'll tell you, a lot of people I've had conversations with think the name's a mistake. Sure. A lot of FI, not very much RE, like forget about RE, just let go of that. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And there's less discussion about defining what success looks like and what a healthy work-life balance should be as opposed to just like who can make it to the finish line first and live a more austere lifestyle as if that's some indication of virtue. We had a guest, to your point, we had a guest on our show once, uh, Paul, who she had this phenomenal phrase. She said, what's wrong with a life well-worked? What's wrong with a life well worked? I love that. A life of service and of helping other people get what they want. That feeds me much more than a life of just take care of myself and forget about everybody else around me. Well, since you brought that up, and we'll come back to the Sacking Benjamin's Creed, but I want to talk about how you made the transition. So you started the podcast about eight and a half years ago. At what point were you able to make this your living? The good news is we had a long ramp because I had this big bag of money. My spouse loves what she does too. So we had a second income in the family and the big bag of money. So it took probably, well, it was the only thing I did starting at eight and a half years ago. So in terms of full-time job, it was right away, but, but it actually started paying some bills. I'm going to say five years in, it was a wide moat. It was a wide enough moat that I will tell people this. If you're thinking about starting a podcast because you think there's a bunch of money here, <laughs> don't. I have a strategy called reverse monetization. <laughs> Start a, off with a bunch of money and yeah, continually put it out. It's a radical new approach to economics that the internet has made possible. I had a client who was a farmer was doing the same thing, but with farming. They said, Joe, you, d have you heard about the farmer who won the million dollar lottery? They farmed it till it was gone. So, <laughs> right. Or the old joke, uh, how do you make a million bucks in the wine business? You start with 10 million or whatever. So, <laughs> so you did it for five years. And, and what was that like? How did you measure your success? And, and how did you know you were on the right path? Uh, we I didn't know we were on the right path. The show was growing and we kept tweaking and really, it was our enjoyment of hanging out, of meeting all these new people, of the learning that we were having and the community that we were serving. In fact, it's, it's funny. There's a woman, uh, Paula Pant. Uh, she has a fun podcast called Afford Anything. She's a recurring visitor on our show. Paula reminds me all the time, Paul, of I think it was our seventh or eighth episode and I sent out an email to everybody involved with the show saying that we had, I had looked at the stats and we had gone from 65 people listening to the show to 69 people listening to the show. Nice. And I was, I was very seriously ecstatic. Well, I, well, I thought that was Welcome fantastic. Steve, Carol, Joey, and Andy. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we still, we still joke about both listeners love our stuff. I still can imagine a room with 70 people in it. And that's a big room full of people. And to serve 70 people at one time, I mean, heck, when you go to Toledo, if there's 70 people there, maybe not a huge win, but that's 70 people that maybe haven't heard your stuff before. 
now you measure that in the you know mid uh, mid five figures land for our show, mm-hmm. and I don't even know what those numbers mean. Like I look at the numbers of people listening to our show, and I don't that doesn't register. But sixty five to sixty nine people, that's huge. So I think so to answer your question more directly. What fed us those first years was paying attention to the community we're serving now and continuing to serve those people, tweaking the show so that we could serve them better. Frankly, some people want us to lose the comedy. We doubled down and actually took comedy courses and classes. We were a couple of guys who were a little bit funny. We started actually trying to hone our craft a little bit and learn how to be funny. And then at five years, when the show really took off, which was after five years, we did the big thing, which was I realized that we had to quit doing everything else. And I had to remake the show so it was much more like The Tonight Show than it was. We were kind of half into comedy, half out, half into Tonight Show land, half out. And we blew up the show. We redid the entire show and immediately lost a third of our listeners. No kidding immediately lost a third of them. And I got the worst hate mail. You just killed my favorite show. Uh, I can't stand what you're doing. And I was writing notes to people saying, I get it. We're not good at this yet. Hang on. I realized I don't like our product right now either, but just hang with me. And I remember we were on vacation, uh, Cheryl and I, we got this sweet deal to go to Puerto Rico. And did you um, uh, have to take a tour of a timeshare? <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. All I had to do was endure four hours without my uh, any of my personal belongings to get them back. They had to just show me one more time the two bedroom. We didn't get have any of that, which was awesome. But it, it was Puerto Rico is beautiful. But I'm writing this treatise about our show to this woman because I think she wants to talk about how a podcast is constructed. And I get really geeked about that because I could talk to you all day long about constructing a better machine for your show. And she writes back. You are the most egotistical SOB that I have ever talked to. And I, well, no, I'm not trying to be egotistical. I'm just trying to tell you this is where we're trying to head. Well, anyway, about six weeks, maybe eight weeks later, you could see, Paul, if I went back and showed you our stats, you can see the hockey stick. Once, Once we doubled down and we committed to doing the thing that we really should be doing instead of being half in and half out, it's the same thing you and I, you know, talk about all the time with people. Once you get serious about it and you decide this is what I'm doing and you plant your flag there, things got great. And that's when all the awards started coming. The show grew much, much faster then. And, and it was really exciting. The, the cool end of that story, by the way, was the woman who called me the SOB. When we started our Facebook group about eight months later, she was one of the first people to join. And she wrote me a note saying, I hope you noticed that I just joined your new Facebook group. And I was wrong. I really like the show better now. It really <laughs> is better. Did you experience self-doubt through that transition? There's always self-doubt. Self-doubt never goes away. I don't think there's ever a time when I thought the path was clear. You know, it's uh, being okay with the self-doubt. There's this phrase that Nike had before they had just do it that I, I know why they got rid of it, Paul, but I like it better. Nike used to say, feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. And then they changed it to just do it. Just do it's way better. But for me, feel the fear and do it anyway is a mantra that I still live by today. That's interesting. I feel like I've heard almost every business anecdote there is to share, and I've never heard the full story. I've even read Phil Knight's memoir, Shoe Dog, which is phenomenal for anybody who's listening and wants to check out a great, entertaining read and learn something by mistake. And if that's what you like, you should listen to Stacking Benjamin's podcast, by the way. (laughs) I actually don't know that they've ever publicized that. I'll tell you the only reason I know that is because I had it hanging on my wall as a high schooler, that phrase. So I don't know if they used it for a long time or a short amount of time, but they had a poster that was the center of, I believe it was a centerfold of Runner's World Magazine, one episode, or excuse me, one issue. And yeah, that hung on my wall because it spoke to me even then. Well, I just Googled feel the fear and do it anyway. There's a lot of uh, results. So I'm going to poke into that afterwards because that's great. So feel the fear and do it anyway. I think, you know, when I did this episode a few weeks ago, it was an interview with my wife and we talked about how we talk about money. And I was more nervous going into that conversation than any other conversation I've had. And I've interviewed some pretty impressive people 
But that turns out to be an episode that's resonated with people more than any other one because they said, I, you were brave to do that. And I could hear in your voice the same feelings I have when my wife and I are talking about money. And it's like, okay, that was a good thing to do. But it made me scared, which made me kind of go, okay, if I'm scared, that's probably the right thing to be doing. It's so hard though, isn't it? Yeah, it's very hard. It's and especially with her, because she holds the keys to everything, big guy. No doubt. No doubt about it. As I've written somewhere in the past, if there's one person you don't want to piss off, it's the one person you're allowed to have sex with until one of you dies. <laughs> so you've mentioned the term to serve the audience. Tell me about what you feel your mission is in what way you want to be of service to your audience. I like to surprise people with things that they didn't realize would uh, turn them on. I like... I like uh, bringing together the word I need to use is desperate, but I'm not talking about desperate. I'm talking about two different things. I like taking two different people who come at life with a different point of view and seeing if we can get person A to like the stuff that person B likes and person B to like stuff that person A likes. Uh, this started off, by the way, was fascinating to me in college. My In high school, my brother and I had a little disc jockey company. This is my first business. My dad was really drunk at my cousin's wedding and the <laughs> DJ sucked. And my dad was bragging that his two boys could probably DJ better than this idiot could. And so he was not going to give us the money to do it, though. We had to write a business plan. We had to tell him how we were going to make money. And uh, we had to go research equipment. Like, he put us through the ringer. And then he gave us a loan. And we had to pay interest on it, right? But he he did the whole business 101 thing. And uh, so we went through that. We had this company. And so I was a disc jockey doing weddings and parties and bar mitzvahs and whatever for 10 years. But my theory, because Joe has a theory about everything, my theory on good disc jockeys, because I go look at other people, was if I played song A from a genre that I knew that a lot of people liked, one half the room liked, and then I followed it up with a song that those people wouldn't mind in a different genre, but it would also bring the people on the other side of the room into the fold, I would fill up the dance floor by going back and forth much better than a lot of bad DJs that I saw who would stick with one genre. I could bring the whole room, bring the whole family together. I could play a 50 song, you know, something, play the twist or whatever, and or the Beatles. And then I could go into, into something that's very current and hot and just kept going. I, I would go back and forth and that worked. And we tried to do that in our podcast. The same thing. I will if headline number one is something really geeky, headline number two is going to be about something completely different. And hopefully if headline one doesn't get you headline two will. And by the way, those two headlines are going to be way different than our main guest, Paul Ollinger, on the show. That's what I'm trying to do with Crazy Money also. Last week, I had Princeton philosopher whom the New Yorker referred to as the most influential living philosopher. I love that episode, by the way. Oh, thanks. And this week, I have Joe from Detroit. <laughs> clearly a step up <laughs> thanks for listening to that episode so let's talk about like what's the biggest mistake people make with their money that you can help them with i love the fact that you and i my friend get to talk to smart people in all different areas and one of my biggest learnings came from a woman named laura vanderkam who studies time management and energy and the biggest mistake I think people make is they don't realize that we only have so much decision power in our head per day. It's like a battery. And at the end of the day, it runs out, which is why people like Ariana Huffington are obsessed with sleep, right? So that I can put more charge in that battery. So number one, making your most important decisions at the beginning of the day that are going to impact your business life, which by the way, is your financial life, right? Making those early, the important stuff and not procrastinating on those is important. Second, knowing your rhythm and how you work. But even more than that, this is the biggest aha. People continually find really cool financial stuff that helps them and they don't automate it. That's the biggest mistake. What do you mean by that? Well, I do something really cool. Like as an example, I figured out the other day that I have a cable modem from, so we just moved to Detroit in January and I brought a cable modem with me, but I needed internet right away for our new house so that we could do the show. And so I rented one. I was only going to do that for a month. I'm still renting a cable modem right. a, year, a year later. 
And so I went to the cable company and returned the cable modem and I captured the 30 bucks. What I didn't do in my old life was automate step two, which was automatically increase my savings by 30 bucks so that not only do I have 30 bucks more in my wallet, it actually automatically gets saved. Like this idea of automating the good decisions that we make so that they build our net worth is something that we don't do enough. There's so many cool apps out there. Your bank is smarter than ever. Even Bank of America, who I hate, talking to you, Bank of America, um, even they have really cool things on their app that will help you get ahead. These tools, using automation tools so that you can go about making more money and then it automatically gets saved to the right place is the biggest mistake I see people make. What role should a financial advisor be playing in people's lives? And a lot of people think, well, I'm not rich enough to have a financial advisor. At what point does it make sense? I think we need to redefine financial advisor first, because when I transition from financial advisor to financial media, a lot of the crap in the media about financial advisors drives me crazy. It's very easy to talk about fees and making sure my financial advisor is not ripping me off. Like if you want to read on the internet about financial advisors, every third article is about financial advisors ripping you off. If we back away from what maybe our current interpretation or head is of a financial advisor, think about what we really want. What I really want is super smart people around me. And it's not just in finance, it's in health and wellness. I want to surround myself with people who are smarter than me so that I get ahead faster. And I don't know anybody, by the way, who doesn't want that. Even my hard-headed friends that would never have anybody in their corner in a million years because they're not going to do it, they still say, yeah, if I was built differently, I would love to have smart people around me. And even those people will listen to podcasts, they'll, they'll read books, whatever. But, um, but you want smart people around you. So a financial advisor isn't worried about assets under management. You're not talking about commissions or money with them or not with them. You're talking about my name is Paul and how do I, how does this person help me get ahead faster? So what are my goals? How do I build milestones toward those goals? And maybe because they have systems to do that, they do that for me because sure I could do it. I could also build a car, but my car would run like crap and it would take me 16 years to build it. So why don't I go buy one instead? I can use the financial planner for this expertise they have and these systems they have to put the milestones in place for me. And then we have the important discussions. How do I change my budget? How do I get my investments allocated so that they meet the end game that I'm looking for? When I get ready to take money out, how do I take that money out? Like I want somebody who looks at the blind spots that I normally don't look at. Financial advisor is not only a smart person to have around you, but it's the person with some emotional distance from your financial situation. Yeah, exactly right. Cheryl and I have a financial advisor and not because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, right, right, but because right. of the fact that if Rick says it, Cheryl's going to do it. If <laughs> Joe says it, there's no way in that. That's Joe's that's a different issue, though. That's a whole <laughs> different issue. That's wives not buying what their husbands say and vice versa, as opposed to your financial advisor talking you off the ledge when you're like, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We need to sell everything. Yes. Yeah. I have what people term. I have a lot of coaches. I pay for a lot of a lot of coaches. I, I have a coach who you would call a life coach. And immediately people tune out when I say life coach because, and, and frankly, I would too, because I'm not really a woo-woo guy. But what she does is looks at all of these different parts of my life and how is Joe working on the stuff that brings the ball together. So she's really a business coach, but it's the business of being Joe, right? So she ties together my health and wellness, my financial picture, the business, all this stuff. Mary Lou, and I hope she's not listening to this, but Mary Lou is somebody that my wife absolutely hates and that frankly, I don't really, I don't really get along with, but she is my favorite coach, Paul, and she's been with me the longest because she looks at the world completely differently than I do. And whenever I have a conversation with Mary Lou, she always is pointing out my blind spot and it's brilliant. It just is absolutely brilliant. I don't want to hang out with her. I don't like the way she looks at life. 
I absolutely love her. And the few times in my life when she hasn't been in my corner, my wife has said like four or five months later, she's holy crap, Joe, you got to rehire Mary Lou. Where's Mary you, Lou? So I didn't mean that literally. I meant your wife was asking you, get, get Mary Lou oh, back. Yes. <laughs> get her back. I think you're right. I've worked with coaches before, executive coaches, one who was particularly brilliant. But what I do know is that if you work with a personal trainer that you're buddies with, you're not going to get half as much done in that time exercising. You're going to gossip and hang out and talk about this or that, but he's not going to push you to make you uncomfortable, which is the whole point of hiring a personal trainer is to get you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't make yourself do. I was at a convention a couple of weeks ago and Jesse, my health and wellness trainer, she, she not only helps me with my workouts, but also with my diet, Jesse uh, knew that at this convention that historically I've gone off the deep end. Like I, there is no food that's out of bounds. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to work out at all. And so I got halfway through the week and she wrote me the world's best email. She said, Hey Joe, just checking in. How's the convention going? Are you happy with the choices you're making? Uh. And what a a-hole thing to say to me. <laughs> She puts it all on you. It was great. It was just, and I showed my buddy who's there with me. He's, and, and I wrote her later. I said, okay, I'm, I'm doing 60%. I realize 60% is a failing grade. However, last year I was a 0%. So right. this is it's progress. Big win. One step at a time. Why do you think we as a culture are so hesitant to talk about money? Why is it rude to talk about money in the United States? I grew up in that family. When my parents would talk about money, my brother, sister, I would walk into the room. Immediately, they'd stop and we had to leave the room. And because of that, I made a bunch of financial mistakes when I was in college. And I messed up my financial life at a very early age. How'd you do it? Oh, so uh, I went to the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, and uh, that did Citadel, I love you. That wasn't how I messed it up. My first week at the Citadel, I go to the student union, Mark Clark Hall, and then they had this fantastic table. And I don't remember if it was a stadium blanket or Frisbees or whatever, but American Express was given. And by the way, there is irony for people who've been paying attention. I later on was a spokesperson for American Express later, <laughs> later on. But on this particular day, they were giving stuff away at this table. Of course, I sign up for debt. I, Paul, I'm at, a, I'm at a military college. I can't have a job. I can't repay any money I borrow. It took them, I think, 10 days later after I applied, I had a card in my hand, the American Express green card. And the first time we got any leave, because that's what you called being able to leave campus at a military college was leave. I took my friends to this cool mall in North Charleston, went to a fantastic restaurant in the mall, and I bought for everybody because I had this card. <laughs> and not only that, I went down to Nordstrom and I saw this kick-ass sweater on a mannequin. And like every 19-year-old in a military college, I shopped off the mannequin, you know, no color coordination if it wasn't picked out for me by some officer. So I, I looked at this mannequin, saw this cool sweater, and I bought it. Nordstrom, expensive sweater. Yeah. And then 30 days later, this amazing thing happened that I had not thought about once. The bill came. And I did what anybody at a military college that can't have a job would do. I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, we have a problem. And my mom said, we don't have a problem. <laughs> you have a problem. You need to figure it out. And within 90 days, my card was gone and my credit was destroyed. And I paid back the collection agency the next summer oh, God. Um, and learned a valuable lesson about credit at a very, very early age. But that doesn't answer your original question. So if you had talked about money in your home, do you think you would have avoided that pitfall? Which, yes. by the way, is probably the most common financial pitfall for all of us. I certainly dug myself into an ugly credit card fueled hole just trying to keep my car running when I was in my early 20s, you know? I go talk to high schools uh, locally, you know, uh, teachers invite me in. It's really fun. And we'll do a Q&A with the, with the money guy, right? And every single question is a variation of how do I screw myself? I'd like to get a car loan. How do I do that? 
uh, when I graduate from high school, I want to buy a house. I don't want to rent because I are renting, throwing money away. How do I do that? How do I, everything is, how do I get into debt up to my eyeballs? Like that's, it's just our culture. I don't know why we don't talk about money. I think it's embarrassing. I think that we think that other people know more than we know. I think there are very few people like me who have sat in front of a lot of different families and realizes that nobody knows shit. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows anything. Everybody has skeletons in their closet. We're all making some of the same mistakes, which means it's okay to talk about. And by the way, if you can frame your mistakes in a manner that's funny and teaches a lesson to somebody else, it not only makes us more endearing, I think, to other people, it relaxes everybody, you know? So, which is another reason why the deep money conversations are so difficult for people. If somebody comes up to you, Paul, and they go, hey, let's have a deep conversation about money. You're like, oh God, let's not. Please. <laughs> no, but it's hard. One of your points in the Stacking Benjamin's Creed is there's nothing embarrassing about money. Let's talk about our wins and losses so we can learn from them. Even talking with the people you love the most and to whom you owe the most and with whom you have the closest relationship, talking about money is, is brutally difficult. It is until you, until you actually crack the egg open. I've found the best budget has been in my life and for the people that I've coached has been uh, just having a structured money conversation. When I say structured money, that's more of this. Here's what Cheryl and I do. On a weekend, we take out our money app. We use a thing called Tiller Money, but we've used Clarity Money before. We've used Mint before. So it doesn't matter what the thing is. Just have something that tracks your money and bring it to the meeting. And by the way, by the meeting, this thing's going to be 20 minutes and it's either over wine or pancakes. You choose. Or both. And if, if it is both, we might have to talk. But the, uh, well, I don't, you could have pancakes for dinner, but wine sure. for breakfast might mean you have a problem. So we'll have one or the other. And then we dig in to the budget and here's what we do. We just go over all the money we spent the week before. We just flip through that thing and we look through everything that we spent. We kind of talk about where we might've made mistakes. And by the way, you know what we find? We find that a lot of the automatic bills that we have, we either didn't need them. So it's either some channel that we, you know, subscribe to. And then they, a year later, oh, we still have that. And we catch those, or we find mistakes in our phone bill. We found mistakes in our phone bill, maybe four times. We find these things that we have questions about. So because we look at it and we inspect it really quickly, by the way, we don't take a lot of time because we inspect it. We know how we spent money and we do that together because the next thing we're going to talk about is what's coming up. What do we got coming up the next week that we're going to spend money on? I'm headed to Toronto on Monday, this coming weekend, we go to my sister's house. So we know these things are coming up and we're going to spend money on some stuff. And then there's no surprises because a lot of the time what was killing Cheryl and I was we would walk into, you know, I'd walk into the foyer at home and there's a bunch of bags there because she <laughs> bought school clothes for our kids. Right. I know we need school clothes. She knows we need school clothes, but we never talked about it. I had just spent a bunch of money on reserving a hotel for our trip to Florida. And there we are. We both spent a bunch of money and now we're in trouble because we didn't talk about it. So we talk about upcoming expenses. And then once a quarter, we'll also look at our investments. And we start off the conversation about investments with where we need to be right now. So we have a milestone of where we want the investments to be, what the bottom line is. And then we see if we're ahead or behind. If we're ahead, we have one type of discussion. If we're behind, we have another. Very quick, 20-minute conversation, always fun. And I'll tell you, it's not that 20 minutes that makes the most sense, Paul. It's once we have the 20-minute conversation, the rest of the week, we're naturally talking about money then. Mm-hmm which is really cool. Like how'd, it opens up these bigger conversations. How'd you get started doing that? Cause it seems like it's a great practice once it's going, but it seems like it might be difficult to get the thing working at the beginning. Good point. Because if one person owns it and the other person's kind of dragged to the table, it is absolutely going to stink. So what I said was, Hey, you know, we, one thing we're fighting about all the time is money. Let's try this out. I thought of this thing. And for me, I said, I thought of this thing and I want to see if we can play test it for clients at the time when I was a financial advisor. If you don't mind play testing this with me, this would be great. And while most people listening can't do that, you can say, hey, <laughs> I've got this idea. We can change it up. But this is like a basic framework and maybe this will help. Let's just see. And instead of one person being in charge and the other person being dragged to the table, we actually had a written agenda. 
Item one we're going to do is look through our tracking. Item number two we're going to do is we're going to talk about expenses the next week. Item number three is once a quarter, we're going to look at investments. That's it. And, and we just check off the boxes and then we're done. And if we follow the agenda and one person's not bossy and the other person's being dragged to the table, it's so much better. When I was with clients sometimes and you'd have one, and this is horrible, but it was stereotypically the man would treat the woman like she didn't know what the hell was going on. It was so annoying. It was so annoying. Don't be, don't be that guy or don't be that woman. What if you are that man or that woman? (laughs) (laughs) Just, just out of curiosity. Well, then back it down, pal. <laughs> I think the first thing is realizing it, right? Like knowing yourself. I mean, sure, I'm a money nerd. I get it. Yeah. I get excited about board games. Whenever I say, hey, Cheryl, let's play this. She's like, oh, God, no, please. So I have to really soft play it. And I have to, you know, I start the conversation in the car. We're going down the road and I go, hey, there's this new card game that I was reading about. It's really cool. It's about bicycling in Taiwan. This is my favorite game right now, by the way. It's about bicycling in Taiwan. And she's like, oh, that sounds kind of neat. I'm like, oh yeah, the artwork is is beautiful. And I just slowly plant the seed. Oh, you know what? You sounded cool about it. And we both give each other allowances. So I'm like, well, I bought it. It was $14. So I, I bought that card game. Oh yeah, that sounds cool. And then the card game comes and, uh, hey, you want to go down to the basement and play my bicycling in Taiwan card game? Yeah, it sounds neat. But if I go, hey, let's play a let's play a heavy duty board game right now. Let's have this very deep four hour long game of Monopoly where I'm going to crush you, and <laughs> absolutely no fun. Like, nobody wants to take part in that crap. Well, it sounds like you've got all kinds of vices in your life. Board games. Yes. There's got to be a support group you could join somewhere, Joe. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Love what you're doing. Before I let you go, I want to know, you came back to Detroit after a few years away. Tell me what's going on there these days. Oh, I'm glad you asked, man, because it is a different city. When I left the city, it reminded me of another comedian, Mike Birbiglia. Sure. And Mike Birbiglia would always, he would tell these jokes about how we can say something, but you can't say it, right? My brother-in-law from Columbus, Ohio, I went to Michigan State, so I'm not involved in this Michigan, Ohio State thing, but I do know he's from Ohio. My brother-in-law one time at our holiday celebration was was ripping on Detroit. And I'm like, whoa, 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 pal. Detroit's a badass city. This is like 15 years ago. Detroit's a badass city. He's like, well, you rip Detroit all the time. I'm like, yeah, but I live here. Right. You don't live here. So you can't rip Detroit, but I can. But I'll tell you, anybody today though, Paul, who rips Detroit, you got to come here. Because when I left a decade ago, downtown was mostly closed. And you come into downtown today and Woodward Avenue, the main thoroughfare, wide open, stores open, people walking, kick-ass restaurants, speakeasies, these places, these little hidden places that nobody knows about in the back room, old buildings being renovated with these kick-ass companies, Shinola, Mm -hmm. the the cool watch company has a hotel now downtown. It is a really, really neat, vibrant place. And and they're making all the right moves, you know, moving the auto show from January to June. (laughs) Like, why didn't we think of that sooner? Really? I mean, I've been to Detroit more times than I'd like to say during the wintertime and not your best season. No, no. Putting your strong foot forward, doing that in January, not at all. But June, take that Atlanta. Yeah. Well, you don't want to come to Atlanta in June or August, but October, April, May, it's awesome. Yes. Every city has a season. So it's sustainable. You think Detroit's back for good? I think it's a mistake to think that anything's ever back for good, right? Right. When people tell me they have a stock and it's never going to go down. I'm like, yeah, right, sure. Uh, Even Jeff Bezos talks about, he worries about the fact that Amazon might not be around in 10 years. And you look at one out of every two purchases this Black Friday was on Amazon.com. So he's got a long way to go to fail, but he's even worried about it. So, But I do think for the foreseeable future, I think it's a pathway up, Paul. That's awesome to hear. But the cycle does move fast. It's, I mean, in the tech world is very different than municipalities and all that. But I mean, I worked at Yahoo during the height of its power. And, you know, when I started at Facebook, I was always measuring our growth against Yahoo and MySpace. I mean, literally when I took the job, before I took the job at Facebook, I said to my wife, someday this company could be as big as MySpace. And, you know, which is completely irrelevant today. You never know. Uh, but by the way, it's not completely irrelevant. We measure our Stacking Benjamins listenership against MySpace today. 
I bet you're going to say your Facebook group is almost as big as your MySpace group, but <laughs> all right. The name of the uh, podcast is Stacking Benjamins. We can find it wherever we find podcasts. Is this true, Joe? That is very, very, very much true. And is there any other place on the interweb or any other place you'd like to point our listeners to find out more about you and the show? You can head to stackybedjamins.com. And uh, if you're only interested in headlines, financial headlines, we have a second show that I co-host with another recent of guest course. of yours, Bobby Rebell. Friends with money. I'm, I've, I meant to bring that up earlier. Yes, Bobby is a very good friend of the show. In fact, she's the one who introduced uh, me to you. So I, I'm very grateful to her for that. Yeah, we have fun over there too. That's six days a week. It's a very quick show, quick headlines, or three days a week stacking Benjamins. Awesome. Joe, Saul, Seahai, thank you very much and look forward to seeing you very soon. Thanks a lot. Can't wait. Thank you, Joe, for joining us today on Crazy Money. And thanks for lunch on Friday. It was great. Great to meet you in person. Look forward to staying in touch in the future. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, if you like what we're doing here on Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate it if you took a minute to rate and review the show on which whatever app you're finding us. Also, if you really want to do us a favor, why don't you take a minute to share this episode on your social media channels and or by email with three friends, three friends that are smart and curious and funny and influencers in their respective worlds or not, just people who would enjoy it. I appreciate you joining me and staying with us all the way through the end. I hope you're having a great afternoon, evening or morning, wherever you find me. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.